Hi, this is Pastor Sam Murphy from Christ Centered Church, and you are listening to Christ Centered Cast. I feel very honored to be able to share tonight. When Pastor Sam asked me to share something, I thought about the different passages I've been reading through my devotions, and I started working through this book called The Emotionally Healthy Church. It was just a workbook. And in the first part of it, there was a discussion about the psalm we're going to look at today, which is Psalm 69. And the way that the workbook used it was it was just a picture of if someone came into our church and shared these deep emotions, how would we handle it? And I thought, you know what, that seems like a a good place to start. Um, And then I actually read the chapter and started digging into it and discovered that is just the tiniest tip of the iceberg. And isn't that sad that this book, which I can't speak to all of it, maybe there's a lot of depth there, but took this chapter and boiled it down to that one little tiny thing. But how would we handle that? How would we handle someone coming into church and sharing all of the deep, dark despair that they may be going through? Emotions are hard. Emotions are difficult. Emotions make us uncomfortable, especially when people are honest and vulnerable. How do we handle when we have those emotions? How do we deal with those? Thankfully, we have the Psalms, and specifically Psalm 69, because in the Psalms we see how we can talk to God. And in Psalm 69, we see how we should pray when we are in the pit of despair. The, this specific Psalm is quoted quite often in the New Testament. There's a whole lot of depth to the Psalm. It's often attributed to David. So if I say David or the author, well, it's, we're going to say it's interchangeable today. But the point is we see the author crying out to God while he's in deep peril. So how should we pray when we feel like we are stuck in the pit of despair? First, we see we should pray from a place of vulnerability. Starting in verse 1. Save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who would attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord, God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. 
I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's son. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit at the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. So we see that the author finds himself in the situation, and he presents it in a way that if God doesn't save him, he is going to die. It's deep, and it's dark. It is the pit of despair. But we see that he's vulnerable with what's going on. He doesn't hold anything back. He's surrounded by his enemies. They want him dead. And what does he do? He calls out to God in that situation, honestly, vulnerably. There's three ways we can pray from a place of vulnerability. And the first way is share your flood of troubles when you're in your pit. We see that the author talks about the waters coming up to his neck. I don't know if anyone has almost drowned here, but when you're in that situation, it's very scary. You, you do feel like you are going to die. And when you have that water coming up and getting in your mouth and your nose, and it makes it hard to breathe, and especially when you start to panic in that situation, it only makes it worse. And he says that he's sinking deep in deep mire. I think of just a pit of mud that he's stuck in, that there's no foothold. And we see oftentimes in the Psalms that uh, they compare Jesus to a rock, a refuge. So you have the contrast here with no foothold, nothing to set your foot on to be safe. So even if you try to get out, you're slipping. Maybe sometimes you lose your shoe in a mud pit because there's no foothold. In all of this, we see that he is continually crying out. He continually shares his flood. In verse 3, I am wearying with my crying out. My throat is parched and my eyes grow dim. That is, um, I don't want to say a dramatic way, but an alliterative way of saying I'm dying with waiting for my God. Share that flood. Let God have it. Call out to him. Be vulnerable. Share your feelings in that situation. And we also see as we move on that we can share who or what is causing us to be in our pit. In verse 4, he starts talking about the enemies he has, more than the numbers on the hair of his head. They're mighty enemies. He gives this list of all of these things that are attacking him and why they are attacking him. And they, he says that they attack him without cause. They seek to destroy him with lies. And what he didn't take, they're, ask, they're telling him he has to give back. So they're saying, we want your stuff, more or less, in that situation. But the author doesn't claim to be completely blameless. He moves on to say, God, you know my folly. You know my sin. You know what I actually have done wrong. They are accusing me of things I haven't done. God knows what I have done wrong. 
and he kind of switches to addressing God. He's, oh God, you know my folly. You know what has led my heart astray. And in verse 6, he brings up the paraline of let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. And that's a way of him saying, you know, if if you don't save me, if you don't come through in the situation, I don't want those who trust in you to see it and be discouraged. So it's a way of him calling out to God to say, hey, I need this help so other people don't become discouraged as well. Um, one of the things I got sidetracked on when I was studying is Lord God of hosts. And it's a great picture in this because when he's talking about he has, you know, enemies that are numberless. A Lord of hosts is calling God the Lord of armies, the Lord of strength and power. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at that. Of Yeah, I may have all of these enemies, but I have the Lord of armies, the Lord of power, the Lord of hosts that I can call out to, that I can say, this is what is causing my pain. This is what is causing me to be in my pit. And then we see that we share vulnerably our flood of troubles. Who or what is causing our pit? And might maybe why? Why do we think we are in our pit? In verse 7, it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. So the author's pointing out to God that it is because of how much he loves God, how, how he's a servant of God. That is why he is bearing reproach. And in this chapter, reproach is used a lot. It's very interchangeable for, like, insult. Um, so someone mocking you, insulting you. And we see him build kind of a, a drama here. So he says that it's for God's sakes that he's born reproach and the dishonor has covered his face. And then in verse 8, I have become a stranger to my brothers, which could mean um, more countrymen, friends, local community. And then he adds on that, not only that, but an alien to his own brothers, his own siblings. And he continues on and explains further that for zeal for your house, so for his love for the house of the Lord is why the people have insulted him, has reproached him. We have reproached there two more times in verse 9. He then in the last three verses in the section, 10, 11, and 12, um, talks about how he wept and humbled himself and his soul with fasting. And in this, in, together with the fasting and the sackcloth, it, that's a situation of mourning. So you have these people who taken this man, whether it be David or not, who is in mourning for whatever reason. So something bad has happened to him. He's mourning, he's fasting. They make a joke of it. They insult him because of it. And it's, we have 
when I made sackcloth for my clothing, I became a byword for them. That's another way to say a joke or an object of scorn. And then he becomes the topic of gossip. The town drunkards make songs about him. They, they joke, they, make, they laugh at his pain. And I don't know about you, but that is, just seems extra mean. What flood might you be struggling with or against today? Are you in a flood of doubt? Maybe there's difficult relationships, temptations, challenging job, health concerns, dealing with society in this day and age. Are you an object of scorn? Do you feel like your pain is a joke to other people? Whatever is making you feel like you are drowning, let it all go to God. You can unfiltered, unedited, just let him know exactly how you feel. Pray in an open, vulnerable way. That is the first way we can pray when we feel stuck in our pit of despair. The next way we can pray is we should pray from a place of dependence. I know Pastor Sam really likes therefores and for this reason, but I have but here. You will see this one more time, but you see that in verse 13, he starts, but as for me. So the perspective kind of changes. He's talking about his pain. He's talking about the other people who are trying to hurt him. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep water. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me from my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comfort and found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So we should play from a, pray from a place of dependence. We see that transition here. We can, in the situation of our pits, we can depend on God's love. And the two times he says love in this section in verse 13 and again in verse 16, it's talking about that said love, the love that is the faithful covenant, unconditional, never-ending love. So even though he's in this pit of despair, he feels like he's drowning. He knows that God still loves him. There is still that has said unconditional love in that situation. I also found it very interesting that he said at an acceptable time. And I think that's a good understanding of God and his timing. 
I'm sure I know when I have been in my own pit of despair, an acceptable time is right now. I don't want to deal with it anymore. But we don't get to decide exactly when it's over. But no matter what, God's love is there. That is there. His unconditional, steadfast love is there. In verses 14 through 16, he reiterates that he's sinking in the mire, so we have our mud pit again. He's asking for deliverance, lots of floodwaters. But in all of that, we can depend on God's love. We can also see that we can depend on God for a couple other things. In verse 17, we see that he says, Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. So we see in that little section, he depends on God for deliverance, an answer, and to, for him to draw near. And that's all stuff we can rely on God for. You can ask God for that. You can pray for that in the situation, no matter how messed up, no matter how deep and how watery, muddy, awful. You can depend on God for deliverance, an answer, and you can depend on him to draw near. And what I think is one of the things we might need most in that situation is we can depend on God to know and care about the situation that we're in. In verse 19, you know my reproach. You know what insults I have faced and my shame and my dishonor and my foes are known to you. God knows all of that. He knows whatever shame you might be facing, whatever you feel is your dishonor, whatever you feel other people have thrown at you, what, whatever enemies you feel like you might have. God knows. And then he continues, he shares how the insults have broken his heart. He's in despair. He looked for pity, but there was none. No comfort. They gave him poison and sour wine. But God knows, and God cares. Do you have a hard time relying on God when you are in the pit of despair? Do you have a hard time depending on God? It can be hard when you feel like you're being swallowed up to ask for help, even from God. We think we need to have it handled. Um, that if our faith was better, if our faith was stronger, we wouldn't need help. We wouldn't need to depend on God so much. But it's the complete opposite of that. The more you depend on God, the stronger you will be. You can, in those dark times, call out for deliverance. You can ask for an answer. You can call out to God to be near to you. You can depend that his love will be there for you. It almost feels like that's a complete psalm. We could end it there. Um, but... The psalmist decides he's going to keep going and he's going to keep sharing his feelings. 
So we see when we're in that pit of despair, we should pray from a place of vulnerability. We should pray from a place of dependence. And then if needed, we should pray from a place of anger. Here's where it gets sticky. The author is very angry in this situation. He is furious. These people have broken God's laws. They have mocked and insulted him. And he just prays that anger. And we are often very uncomfortable with anger. When you think about actually openly expressing your anger, it's scary. It's uncomfortable. It feels wrong in a way. But here we have a clear example of the author talking to God and just letting that anger go. In verse 22, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add, upon, add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Pray your anger honestly. Don't hold back. He prays curses on God's enemies. The important part is in verse 24. For your indignation. Let your burning anger overtake them. Not mine, not the author's, God's. I think when we're angry... We don't want to give it to God. We want to take care of it ourselves. But that's not how it works. If you're angry, let God know and then let him take care of it. It's his indignation, fancy word, his burning rage that will take care of it. But be honest. In verse 22, it talks about let their own table before them become a snare, and when they're at peace, let it become a trap. In this situation, in some of the translation, it is called a banquet, which also could be referred to like a sacrificial feast. So it's something they technically should be doing to honor God. It was supposed to be an act of worship, but in this situation, because they're enemies of God, they were probably doing it in a way that was unworthy, that wasn't actually worshiping God, which is part of the reason why the author may have been so upset. So also analyze why you're angry. That's important. In verse 26, he lets God know why God should be angry at them. For they persecute him you have struck down. They recount the pain of those you have wounded. And we think, well, God knows that already. God knows everything, right? Well, how often do we go up to a friend that we have 
when someone makes this man, you'll go, you go, you will never guess what they did. Well, don't do that. That's gossip. Do that with God. God knows. Go to God and tell him you will never guess what they did. And share that. He's wants God to vindicate his chosen, his people, people who love and trust and believe in God. So they persecute him who you have struck down. Now, it's not an actively like God striking them down. It's not, God's not angry at these people. It was just, you know, things in life happen, like just to this author. It was someone who is in pain, who has already been going through stuff, and these people are piling it on top. They continue to add insults. They continue to laugh at their pain. So pray your anger honestly. Tell God why you think said person's situation deserves God's anger. And then ask for justice. In verse 27, add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So he's saying they are guilty. They have done this thing. We have the concept of acquittal here, which is to let them off, to get a lesser sentence, to be redeemed in a situation. But he's asking God to punish them to the full extent. You get 25 to life or whatever it is. He wants God to forsake them, to say that their sins, it's over. And leave it to God. Again, he ends there, it's in God's hands. Anger is often a defense mechanism. It protects us from harder feelings to deal with, whether it be a deep pain, a shame. Do you have any anger in in your life you need to vent? Pray your anger to God honestly. Tell God exactly everything about it and ask for justice, but then leave it in God's hands. Don't think that you have to wait to calm down for God to hear what is going on. Lastly, we should pray from a place of renewed focus. Verse 29. Guess what? But... I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah 
and the people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servant shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. We have another but. He gets through all of his anger, and then he says, but. I am afflicted and in pain. He brings it back on himself. He was talking about all the curses he wanted to happen to his enemies. Refocuses, brings it back. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. That is in contrast to all the times he's talked about the floodwaters and sinking in the mire and the flood sweeping over him. He's asking God to lift him up, to set him up above all of that. And he then, after that one little verse, after just verse 29, went from focusing on his enemies, one verse about himself, and then focuses the rest of the chapter on God. And that's where our focus should be, on God. And it almost doesn't like make sense in the situation because we have this guy who just spent the last, I don't know how many verses, a big chunk of verses, heaping curses upon his enemies. And then he immediately jumps into I will praise the name of God with a song. And it's such a change of focus. Um, it's like he got the anger out and decided, okay, now I need to refocus on what's important, and that is praising God. Is that always easy? No. But when you can pull your perspective and change it, it, it does really make it possible for you to praise God in the middle of your pit of despair. He talks about how praising God, magnifying him with thanksgiving, is more pleasing to God than the sacrifice of an ox and a bull. During that time, people did have to sacrifice animals as um, confession for sin. And in this time, they would still have to do that, but the author is saying, it's more important that I actually praise God. That he, praising God, magnifying his name is more pleasing than any material sacrifice we could give him. And that's how we start from praying from a renewed focus. We refocus on our personal praise to God. Another way we can refocus and have a renewed focus is Refocusing on others. In verse 32, When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. So he starts with refocusing on himself, then he changes to praising God, so that personal praise, and then he refocuses on helping other people praise. He says, when the humble see it, they will be glad. The it in that situation is his deliverance. So when people see that he was delivered, they can praise. And then he talks, you who seek God. So he's talking about the humbled, and then he directly addresses the humble. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. 
So he's directly addressing other people. Of, hey, look at what God's done in my pit of despair. Let your heart be renewed, revived, refocused on God. And we can also refocus on community praise. Let the heavens and earth praise him. He's calling for all the heavens and earth, everything in the sea and everything that moves in them to praise God. It's a literal call for the entire universe to praise God. And you can encourage other people to join into your praise. In the middle of your pit of despair, you can do that. And we can praise God together because he has saved us. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. In that situation, some people think the Israelites at this time were maybe in exile and they're calling for the time that God will rebuild the actual city and the actual Judah. Okay. But now we're post that, so we can consider that God will save us. He will build up the city of Judah. We could make it like our communities. A Ju Judah was a town, a city, a community of people. And we are a community of people. And the people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of the servants will inherit it. We can build praises to God together and build that community of praise. When you are working through your pit of despair, let it bring you to a place of renewed focus. It can seem quite impossible to praise in the middle of a pit. Try. Your deliverance, your praise, could bring encouragement to other people. And let that encourage you to share your praise with our community. We saw that in our pit of despair, we should pray vulnerably. We should pray from a place of dependence. We should pray our anger if needed. And we should pray from a renewed focus. See them all in light of each other. They all flow together. It's broken down in this progression of him sharing his feelings and then, but, and then being angry, but praising. And you have to work through it all. You can't just throw your emotions at God and stop there. Can't just yell angry at God and stop there. You need to keep going. You need to work through the sadness, the depression, the anger, the rage, and you need to get to the dependence and the refocus. And it might feel like a constant cycle. You might take two steps forward, one step back, two steps back, one step forward. That's life. That's how it works. But you need to keep trying. You need to keep praying wherever you are in your pit of despair, whether you're climbing out at the top, you're way at the bottom, or hooray, you got out. There are various times of our life that lead us to this deep despair. 
even times of utter rage. But the psalm shows us how we can pray through those feelings. Get vulnerable with God. Depend on him to take care of you. If you're angry, share that anger. But ultimately, refocus on God. So what do we do with this? Are you in a pit of despair today? Has something or someone caused you great pain? Commit tonight to work through it with God. Start by vulnerably praying that pain with God. Share all that pain. What is causing it? Why you think it's happening? Pray that you will depend on him for your deliverance. And if you're mad, let him know. Work through to be able to refocus and praise him. Commit tonight to work through your pit of despair with God. Two, if you are stuck on one of these steps, ask God to help you process whatever has got you stuck. Take an honest look at what you're holding on to, especially if it's anger. Anger is okay, but you can't stay there and let it turn into bitterness, resentment, or all-out hatred. If you're stuck on one of these steps, ask God to help you process whatever has got you stuck. And lastly, praise God for his deliverance. Praise God for bringing you this far, however far that is. Praise God for the communities you have to help build you up. And encourage others to join in your praising. Praise God for your deliverance. He's brought you this far, and he will continue with you. Let's pray. God, I pray and thank you that you are with us wherever we are in processing our pit of despair. I humbly ask that you will help us be vulnerable with you. Take that step, however difficult, to honestly share that we will go to you depending on your love, your deliverance. I pray that if anyone is dealing with any tough emotions, whether it be sadness or anger, that they will go to you, and if they need any help, that they will seek out someone they trust. I praise you for always being there for us through every pit, every high, and every low. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to Christ Center Cast. Please join us again next week. God bless.